are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we are turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 14. This wonderful book that I have come to love so greatly. Peter wrote it to elect exiles who were scattered through Asia Minor at the time, modern day Turkey. Peter is called the Apostle of Hope, wrote this to give them hope, to encourage them. These struggling small little churches, these small communities of Christians, to give them practical instruction how to live in this world that is not their home. This is, if my records are right, our 33rd installment and Lord willing, our final installment in this book going back almost a year and a half. And um, in case you're interested, the next time I will uh, be preaching in the evening in a few weeks, we'll begin a new series. I'm not sure if I should say this or not. It might drive everybody away or it might bring a big crowd. I don't know. We'll be beginning the book of Leviticus. And we'll actually be beginning by starting at the end of Exodus uh, to set up the book for us. So I look forward to that. But tonight we get to finish 1 Peter uh, this evening. Last time we closed the body of the letter. Peter closed with this powerful reminder of God's grace for suffering Christians. And it followed with this wonderful, powerful burst of praise to God. And tonight we come to the concluding and final greetings. But let us pay heed now to God's word from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, Peter ends this first letter not with a pro forma concluding word or two, as most Greco-Roman letters did. But he concludes here with, a warm, embracing, and intentional greeting for his recipients. It's a novel and a creative conclusion that I think really exemplifies his care for the flocks abroad. Remember, this is Peter, that great disciple, that follower of Jesus Christ who wore his heart on his sleeve. You can think of the Mount of Transfiguration and the somewhat silly things Peter said there. Or the confession of Peter, where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? We think of his quick denial that there's no way he would deny Jesus Christ. He says, I will die with you, Christ. But then a few hours later, what does he do? He does deny Christ. He wears his heart on his sleeve. But we see this Peter, after Pentecost, transition to one of these stalwart leaders of the church. But yet he still wears his heart on his sleeve. And I think we see it in these final verses. His heart and soul cares for these Christians, providing spiritual comfort for these fledgling little 
churches. We see here a pastor's love for the flock. The pastor Peter, the elder Peter, and his love for the flock. He offers three things, three things we'll look at this evening in these final verses. He offers three things for this, these flocks. First, a reminder of the gospel. Second, personal greetings. And then third, a pronouncement of peace. So he first offers a reminder of the gospel in verse 13, where he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says briefly, and commentators all seem to chuckle a little bit at the word briefly, because this is much longer than the standard personal letter that was written in the first century. But compared to some of Paul's writings, this is brief. But what I, I think what we see here is he says, this brief letters, there's so much more Peter wants to tell them. So much more that he wants to expound of the grace and the mercy of Christ. He's only scratched but the surface. He says, this is the true grace of God. It is true, there are false versions of the faith out there. There's false gospels, false graces being being put before you, a, a grace mixed with works that is no grace at all. Sometimes there's a false hope that's held out to you, a hope not of eternity in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth with the creator of heaven and earth who has communion with his people, but something less than that, something far less than that. We hear health and wealth gospels. If you just believe a little bit more, you will receive physical blessings in this life. That is not the true grace of God. Persecution and suffering does not void the promises of God as Peter has told us over and over. It does not alter your state before God. It does not mean you are failing in your life as a Christian. The true grace of God is shown over and over and over through this book. I'm tempted to just simply read from cover to cover this book for us to remind us of this, but I think a few Snippets will suffice. The book begins with some, some of the most glorious words in all of Scripture. In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Did you hear that? This, this grace of God, it is God causing us to be born again. And it originates in God for His people born again to a living hope. And remember, the Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not something we're hoping for in the future. The Christian hope is a certainty. It is the promise of God of what will come to be. So he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you are caused to be born again by the grace of God. You are being kept today in the faith he has given you. And we are looking forward to this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter shows this leads to rejoicing. Chapter 1, verse 6. And now, as he says in verse 8, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The Christian life is one of hope and joy. 
Later in chapter one, he says that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed from sin, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Where do all these promises originate? They they originate in Jesus Christ. He's like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the work of Christ leads in chapter two to Peter reminding us of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. Verses nine and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the constitution of God's people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, because what Christ has done for Christ making us pure, for Christ calling us now as a chosen race. And he expands on this, what Christ has done to make this so in chapter two, verses 24 and 25. When Peter tells us that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And again in chapter three, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Again, we see a grounding of our salvation in nothing other than Jesus Christ. Why? That he would bring us to God, to make us this chosen race, now in the presence of God, proclaiming his excellencies to a watching world. And he shows us what is in our future in chapter 5. Verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus Christ returns, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And later in chapter five, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the great hope of the Christian. This is the true grace that we are given in Christ. It originates in God's eternal election and it comes to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now the spirit confirms us and holds us in faith until the final day of Christ's return. This is the true grace of God. And in light of this, Peter calls us to stand firm. And in light of these incredible promises, it's it's almost, uh, it's kind of amazing to me that he would even say stand firm in it. Who does not want these promises? To whom, who hears this and doesn't say, I want that? Oh, praise Jesus Christ. Who does not grab onto this by faith? But Peter knows that in this world, Despite the glories of the true gospel, we can be tossed to and fro by false teaching, by what the world is teaching us about who we are and how we should live. So Peter says, stand firm. A call to remember what is true. To remember these things are true. To not let the world tell you what is true. To not let the world speak what is true about humanity to you. But instead to turn back to the gospel.
God's word. To remember what is true and even more to reject what is false. To hold up any teaching we receive to the mirror of God's word. Say, is it true? Is it right? Or am I hearing something false? So stand firm in what is true. Come back to it over and over. And as we say, you never graduate from this true gospel. It continues to nourish and feed us as we put our eyes upon our crucified Savior. So Peter has put the gospel on a silver platter. As we have feasted upon it week by week as we have looked through this book, it's for us to enjoy, for us to partake in, for us to stand firm in. A reminder of the gospel of true grace. Peter also turns his attention as he loves this flock from the gospel to some personal greetings here. He mentions three people particularly. I want to look at them just very briefly. He first mentions a man named Silvanus. Silvanus. This is a Latinized form of the Hebrew name that you may be more familiar with, Silas. He's speaking here most likely of the Silas that you may know from the book of Acts. This is a man who went with Paul on his second missionary journey. This is a man who was imprisoned with Paul and sang in the jail, and then the Lord miraculously opened the doors of the jail, set them free. The jailer turns to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And it's Silas along with Paul who says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This is the man who Paul said helped him author First and Second Thessalonians. He was a courier who took the decision in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 to churches abroad. And here he is called a faithful brother. And it appears most likely that what Silas has done is he has taken this letter that Paul wrote or that Peter wrote to these churches. He is the courier. There is no U.S. Postal Service. There is no UPS or FedEx. It was a personal, uh, an individual that you knew who would deliver your letter for you. And Silas, Silvanus, took this letter of Peter all throughout Turkey to these fledgling little churches. Maybe he knew them from his missionary journeys with Paul. Maybe he didn't. We don't really know. But there's no doubt that this was a difficult and a lengthy task. It was a dangerous sacrifice. They knew not whether Silas would ever return back to probably Rome where Peter wrote this. He was risking his life for the church of Christ abroad. A faithful servant. So we see Silvanus, who's delivering, maybe helped Peter write the letter. We're not sure and can't tell from this conclusion alone. But also greetings are being sent from the home church by Mark. Mark. This Mark is also called John Mark elsewhere, sometimes just simply John. It's, he was most likely the companion that is written of, of, of Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. This Mark was actually the reason for the fracture in a ministry relationship between Paul and Barnabas. But later, Paul identifies him as one of his fellow workers. There's great reconciliation, but he was in the middle of some controversy even among the apostles. Notably, Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. And here, Peter calls him his spiritual son. 
His spiritual son is sending greetings to all of these churches as well. And it's interesting because the early church, some of the earliest writings we have, identify Mark as what they call the interpreter of Peter. What this likely means is that Mark's gospel is simply the gospel of Peter. And interpreter probably doesn't mean he's, uh, he's, he's translating it from Hebrew to Greek or anything like that, but he's simply taking the teachings of Peter, the public ministry of Peter as he was sitting under it here, again, likely in Rome, and he then penned the gospel of Mark under the authority of Peter because we see there is a dear and close connection between these two. Mark was Peter's son. And this son of the apostle sends his greeting, sends his love, sends his affection for all of Christ's churches with this letter. And then we see the third individual, she who is at Babylon. This is an interesting phrase, and most likely scholars think this is a reference to the church, and most likely the church collective in Rome. It's likely where Peter was writing this. And, but whether it's Rome or not, speaking of she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, this elect exile, he's, he's emphasizing their common bond that they share. Even though he's in the big city of Rome, where there might be a, a, a thriving Christian community, they are still exiles in Babylon. They're still strangers and aliens on this world awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. So they're identifying with one another, saying we're in this with you. Even though you are in some of the remotest region of the known world, those who are back in Rome love you, are praying for you. And possibly they even sent a whole delegation with Silas to deliver these letters. So all of these greetings are being sent from Silvanus, from Mark, from the whole church at Babylon. These greetings bring a unity of one faith, one love that was mutually encouraging to all of these Christians who are a part of this transaction. And he says more than this at the end of verse 14, or at the beginning of verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. So not only are we greeting you, but you as the church need to be greeting one another with a kiss of love. Now, I would not recommend after the service to go give pastor right a kiss. This, was, this is a family greeting. This is taking the church into the realm of the family. The family members would greet one another with a kiss, as some cultures today still greet with a kiss of some kind. Peter's exhortation to greet one another with a kiss of love was saying, look, you are the church. You're not keeping one another at arm's length. You're not a, a, a business transaction. You're not a social club. You are a family. Treat each other as such. Love one another as such. And I agree with Calvin, who says this is not a command to kiss today, but a command to cherish brotherly love. Warm your brotherly affections for one another. Show welcome and care for each other. Love one another, even every time you see each other. Heartily greet one another. Heartily welcome one another. Greet one another, he says. Oh, what the richness of Christian community is. At the local level, we share like a family. On an international level, we still share our affection and love for one another. We are unified as the one people of God. 
And so these personal greetings remind us of what the gospel does to us. It gives us a new community, a new people, a new place to belong and to love and to be loved. And then Peter, after these personal greetings, concludes with a pronouncement of peace. Verse 14, he ends with a benediction. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is a pronouncement of God's blessing. This pronouncement of peace just came out of the Christmas season and it reminds me of Luke 2 where the angels appear to the shepherds in the fields and these angels say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. On earth peace among whom with uh, among those with whom he is pleased. The arrival of Christ marked the arrival of peace. Peace to God's people. This is not a surface level peace, although it can be that, but this is a deep abiding peace that surpasses all understanding as Paul describes it in Philippians chapter four. Peace brings to mind the imagery of war. It's it's an imagery of of being in the middle of, of volleys of ammunition and explosions and shrapnel and yells and confusion and cries. But then in this, a, a man finds a foxhole, a place for safety, a place where he can rest. Despite the war that's raging out there, there is a place of rest. He has peace. And that is the peace that the Christian has. No matter how out of control the world feels or your life feels, we have a true, objective, eternal peace. And this peace depends not on the strength of our faith, depends not on our faithfulness, but on the one who is faithful to us. This peace belongs to us. It is irrevocable. And this blessing, this pronouncement of benediction, a good word upon the church, it's God's promise that is intended to help us feel this peace and to experience this peace, or at the very least, to know and rest in it. So as we hear Peter's benediction, this benediction from God himself is intended to be a comfort, a warm blanket. You have the peace. In Christ. And he says that in very, that these very important words, this peace in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It is not a peace that belongs to everybody indiscriminately, but this is a special peace for God's people. We have a guarantee from history, from Christ's life and death, that there is now peace between God and man. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace, who reconciles us to the Father. And those looking to him through the weak and feebly looking to him have been reconciled to the God of the universe. You have peace. Maybe you don't have peace in your everyday relationships. Maybe you don't have peace at work or with your family. Maybe you don't have peace with others. But there is a greater peace that transcends all of that and puts these this worldly problems in their place. You have peace with the creator of heaven and earth. 
As we read earlier, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says later in Romans, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you trust in Christ, your world reorients and you belong to him and you now have eternal cosmic peace. The benediction that we do at the end of every single one of our services is modeled after this pronouncement. The benediction, the good word, this declaration of what is true of God's people was first commanded in the Old Testament. The Old, Old Testament covenantal practice of the priests who bless God's people. This is called the Aaronic blessing because Aaron, the priest, and all of the other priests were called to say this blessing to God's people. And by doing that, they were inscribing the name of God upon God's people. And thus, when the name of God is inscribed upon them, all of the promises, all of the blessings of God are theirs. This was incredibly important in Old Testament worship, but we see it continued in the New Testament. When Christ ascended into heaven, we see at the end of Luke where he raised his hands and he blessed the people. And the apostles continued that tradition of blessing God's people. Pronouncing what is true. Pronouncing what is now true of you because of Christ. This benediction is not a prayer. So we don't close our eyes during the benediction. But the benediction is a proclamation of the truth as a blessing upon you. It is something to be received. And so you should open your eyes. And if you want, I know we're Presbyterians, but you could even hold your hands out in a, a posture of reception to receive God's blessing upon you of what is true. These are God's words through the minister of God for your good. Derek Thomas briefly explains this and the significance of this benediction for us today. At the end of the service, we hear God's promissory word of protection and provision, care and counsel, help and hope for the week to come. The benediction is a gospel moment. We are God's adopted children. Jesus is our elder brother. The Holy Spirit is our strengthener and advocate. So come what may, we are safe and sound. The benediction is an incredibly important moment in our service because it is with the blessing of God that we are then sent out into the world. It's not the moment to be putting our papers together to be ready to leave. It's a moment to receive the blessing of God that is yours in Christ. What an elder, the pastor Peter, who loves his flock by ending this whole letter with this pronouncement. You have this cosmic peace. He reminds them of the gospel. He gives them personal greetings and pronounces peace upon them. What love we see for these flocks by Peter. This apostle of hope. And even more, as we get a small glimpse of Peter's love, what a glimpse we have of the greater love of Jesus Christ, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. 
So we rejoice today in his blessed salvation. And we look, as Peter has directed us, to the future, to the return of this great shepherd, this great hope, this certain hope of all that he has promised for us. And we can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Beloved in Christ, these are yours. These promises are yours as you look to Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now look to him in prayer. Oh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would give us these blessings, that you would pour out your love for your flock. We are astounded and grateful. Reorient our hearts and our minds to those things which are above as we anticipate your great return. Oh, Jesus, come quickly that all of these promises will finally and ultimately be bestowed upon us. We wait through this world of suffering as you build endurance in us. And as you build endurance, produce character in us. And may this character produce in us hope, awaiting your return. Our Father, we are grateful for your everlasting love. We pray all of this the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.